0: I started my first job when I was uh, 15 years old. I got a job working at a pretty well-known restaurant back home in Pennsylvania. I've noticed that there are a few of them out here as well. Uh, I was the drive through order taker at a place called McDonald's. And I worked there I worked there for a, for a full year, saving a lot of money, so that when I turned 16 and I could get my driver's license, I could get, a, I could get my own car. My, my parents had a car that I could sort of borrow sometimes, but I wanted to, to get my own. So I worked really hard that year, saved all my money, and when I thought I had enough, I decided I was ready to buy my first car. So me and my buddy went to a, went to a car auction that I kind of heard about. And I didn't tell my mom or dad what I was doing. I wasn't trying to be deceptive or anything. I just didn't think about telling them. I just thought I'd, I'd just go buy my car myself, and so they, they they had no idea what I was doing. So we go to this auction, and I had never made a, you know a purchase you know above ten bucks for a T-shirt or anything in my life, you know. And so I didn't know what I was doing. So I went to this car. and I went to the auction with my friend, and, and we saw this Volkswagen Rabbit GTI, and it, it had it had a little sunroof, had a little spoiler action on the back. I'm like, that is a nice car. That will make me look good. And, and so, and so I, I said, that's what I'm going to get. And so my friend and I were standing in line. They bring it up. And, and I start bidding. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm just like bidding. And I, I bought the car. And, and I go to, uh, to, to, to sign some paperwork and, and give all the money that I had earned in that year. And, and I get the keys for the car. And I get inside of it which is the first time that I actually I looked at it up close, which was not, again, a really good idea. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 16. I was a genius. And, uh, and, and so, so, I, so I get inside the car, and I realize there's a problem. I don't know how to drive stick. <laughs> and and, and there's, it's a stick car. And, and my buddy doesn't know either. And so somehow I grind and I stall and I grind and I stall some more. You know when you're driving and something's not going well and you're just sweating like crazy. That was me. Like I was just so wet. It was like I'd taken a you know jumped into a pool or something. By the time I got home, but somehow I made it home and I showed my mom and dad this car that I just spent all my money on, and they were really excited. I can't express to you how happy they were with my choice. I, I, I mean, literally, I can't tell you in church because I can't say what they said. They, they, were, they, were really, they were just really thrilled, you know, with this choice that I made to purchase this vehicle without them knowing about it. And I didn't even tell you the best part yet. Um... I don't know, because again, I I, I knew everything, I was 16, I was a genius, I I knew everything about life, and in that I knew everything about life, 16-year-old mind, I somehow believed because my friend had a diesel Jetta that every Volkswagen took diesel fuel. And so on that drive home, while I was grinding and stalling and stuff, I pulled over to a gas station and put some diesel fuel in it, and it was not a diesel car. And so I didn't even get to drive that car for a long time because it just didn't work until my dad, who actually knows a lot about cars and would have been a great you know, consultant when I was purchasing a vehicle, was able to work it all the way out and get the thing running again. And I ended up driving it for a while. I learned how to drive stick. I even took Tara on some dates in that car um, before I got another one. And, and it turned out to be okay. But as I look back at that now, I think to myself what was I thinking? I mean, what was I doing making this huge purchase? I had never made it before. I didn't know anything about cars. And and what was I thinking? Have you guys ever thought that to yourself as you look back at a decision that you made in your life? What was I thinking? I think we all have. And and I had really honest intentions. I I was completely sincere in what I was trying to do. I just didn't know what I was doing. I, I believed I knew what was right, but I made some really bad choices, even though I was sincere, even though I thought I was doing something good and trying to make a right choice. Have you ever found yourself in a mess because you believed something that wasn't really accurate, that wasn't really true? And, and usually it's not just a silly thing like ruining your first car. We can find ourselves in real life big messes because we thought something was the right thing to do, but later we found out that it wasn't. It's too bad that we can't live life uh, with the benefit of hindsight. You know, because everything looks so much clearer, right? 2020 in hindsight. It's too bad we just can't have a rearview mirror and always see what is on the other side of the decisions that we make. But the reality is life's not like that. We, even the most experienced people in this room, and that's my nice way of saying old, even the most experienced people in this room still are facing new challenges today that they've never faced before. And so we don't have that benefit of living in hindsight, where we can typically see what went wrong and what we would have done differently and, and what wasn't true that we were counting on. We think things like, man, why did I think that relationship was going to go somewhere good? Why did I think that was a wise financial investment? Why did I think that was the best next move for me or for my family? Those are the kind of questions that we ask ourselves after the fact. And we were basing our decisions on some wrong thinking. Here's the thing. A lot of us, in fact, all of us, we have these lies that are floating around in our minds that we think are true, and they're just not. They're just not. We think things like, if I just get this, then I will be content. If I just do this, I will be so much happier. If I just look like this, then I will be full. And the reality is none of those things you know, fulfill us and we just begin to chase after the next lie until we come to the end of that one and realize it doesn't work again. Here's a question that we have to ask ourselves and you have to ask yourself. Do you know the truth well enough to spot the lies? Because there are so many lies out there. Do you know the truth well enough so you can spot the lies that are out there? In other words, the best way to navigate the slippery terrain of the world that we live in is to study, to understand, and apply the real thing well enough so that you can spot the fake whenever it appears. I'll come back to that thought, and I'll wrap things up with that a little bit later. Here's where I want to go today, though. We're going to take a look at a story in Judges. That's where we're at, all right? A wrecked series. We're continuing it today, the book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Old Testament, so it's towards the beginning of your Bible. So get your Bibles out, turn to Judges, and we're in chapter 17 today. If you need a Bible, Um, uh, raise your hand and you can get one. Our rushes are coming forward in the link as well as here in the main so that you can follow along. You want your Bible today to read along. We're going to read chapter 17 here in just a moment. Judges uh, is uh, basically a portrayal of Israel... Without God, God's people Israel, but what they would look like without Him when they were living in this period of time. That's what Judges shows us. The author writes several times in this book that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of following the truth of God, uh, they made their own decisions, free from God's perspective and His loving care. And if you've read along in in this book, as we've been going through this series, you've been reading along in it at home. You've probably scratched your head a couple of times, like I have. Like what what were they thinking? Why were they even doing that? This is so absurd, right? I read the story to story in the judge, and I just think that's crazy. But the more that I read it, the more I realize that's real life, and, and that's like me. And I think our story today is kind of like that. We're going to read about a man named Micah, and I think we're going to see ourselves in it as well when we get to the end. So go ahead and stand up, and let's read Judges chapter 17 together, Okay. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read all the verses till the end of the chapter. Judges 17. Here we go. Ready? uh, Read. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol and they were put into Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. Did I do that again? I did it the first service. I skip a line. Sorry about that. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Just read faster. Then Micah installed a Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Thanks. Have a seat. It's crazy I did that both times. All right. Well, when we take a look at the book of Judges, the first couple chapters are like an introduction to the book. And then what we've been doing over the last several weeks with Jim and Rich preaching, we've been looking at the different Judges' stories um, from chapters 3 to 16. That's the bulk of the book. Today we're going to take a look at at, uh, chapter 17. The very last four chapters, 17 to 21, don't talk about specific Judges of Israel, but they talk about Israelites, people who were living during the time of the Judges, and these stories kind of give us a snapshot, a glimpse into what their lives were like as they were making decisions without God, what their lives kind of looked like. It just kind of gives us some examples, some flesh on what it was like when it says they were living um, uh, without God, without a king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And so these stories are true and accurate. They come from this period of judges. And, and Micah is one of those stories. He, he has a great uh, Jewish name. And he's from the the hill country of Ephraim, a typical Jewish area. He's just a a typical Jewish person person in those days. But the first few verses kind of really give us a jolt when we read them. If you're familiar at all with kind of how God wanted his people to live, uh, Micah and his mom are not like that. Um, first of all, we, we, we meet Micah. He's a thief, a self-confessed thief. His mom is missing 1,100 shekels of silver, and she puts a curse on the person who takes them. And so he becomes scared, and he decides he better confess. And so that's what he, that's what he does. Now, 1,100 shekels, to give you an idea of what, how much that was, 10 shekels of silver was an annual income. So he stole a lot of money from his mom. I mean, a lot of money from his mom. And he only confesses because he he becomes scared about this curse that he heard her place on whoever the thief was. When I was a kid, um, my mom came down. I can remember this story. I can picture us getting around in our living room. She got us kids together because she had lost $60. And that was a lot of money to us. And, And so we got together to pray that somehow we would find the money or God would provide another way, but we, she was really concerned about the $60 that we lost. So we prayed, and my brother Ben, who's younger than me, he has a real tender heart. He says, Mom, you can have my $3. And so he goes upstairs. It's real sweet, right? He goes upstairs, and he goes into his drawer, and he comes downstairs, and he hands, his, he hands my mom his three $20 bills that he had found that morning on the kitchen table. <laughs> <laughs> He he was innocent enough in what he did. Micah in this story, not so much. The only reason that he gives the money back is because he is scared because of this curse that his mom put out there, which, which is not really the kind of thing that you would think a God-fearing woman would do, you know, to put curses out there, but this is what she did. And then you, you think a God-fearing man wouldn't be stealing money from his mom, but that's what he did. And then it gets even odder because then they kind of do bring the Lord into it. She says, the Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned, it says in verse 3, they 1,100 shekels to his mother, um, she she says this, I solemnly consecrate, I set apart my silver to the Lord. That sounds great. Here's what she's going to do. For my son to make them into an image and a cast, a carved image and a cast idol. So he returns the silver to his mom. She takes 200 shekels of the silver, gives them to a silversmith who makes an idol. This is how she's honoring the Lord. She, she must have just maybe forgot, you know, right? Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments that say, do not make for yourself an idol, have no other gods before me. That was like page one, the 10 commandments, that was like page one of like how to be a Jew. And, and somehow she forgot that or, or she ignored it, but, but she wants to honor the Lord. And so she makes this decision to make an idol. That's going to make God really happy. She has a good desire, but she makes some terrible decisions. And then Micah takes these idols, he puts them in his house, he has the shrine already made for them, or this little place of worship, and then he makes something called an ephod, scriptures say. In verse 5, an ephod is something that the priest would wear. It was like an undergarment that he would wear when, when he would um, uh, do his service um, for the Lord. And, and so Micah, no reason for him to make it, but he does And he makes some more idols. And then it says he installs one of his sons as his very own priest. And so Micah is sort of mixing God into his life, but he's making some really strange choices and sort of doing his God thing the way he wants to do it whether out of rebellion or simply out of ignorance. He just doesn't know because the scriptures weren't, weren't brought out. They weren't taught. They, they weren't respected during this time in Judges. They, they were far from God. It says everyone did as they saw um, fit. And so Micah just ignores all this stuff. Um, he wants to do enough to get God's blessing, though. He, he kind of wants God's favor on his life, and he sort of thinks of God as a good luck charm. And so he wants these idols that are, you know, he wants a priest. He wants this stuff. And to him, God is a good luck charm. He wants God's favor. He wants God's blessing. The same with the mom as well. You know, it's hard to not be superstitious sometimes. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm a big Phillies fan. A lot of you guys uh, know that if you know me well. I grew up in Philadelphia, went to lots of games as a kid, still root for them. In fact, my neighbors know how much I love Philadelphia because I hang my flag. Do that picture. I hang my flag outside of our house. Uh, because because I'm a Phillies fan, I love it. In fact, in my office right here in the church, I have a chair from Veterans Stadium before they blew it up. My wife went to an auction, and got it for me. And when I sit in it, I come up with really great lessons for the kids upstairs. And so um, and so it's this it's and so I really love the Phillies. Well, anyway, I remember when I was in high school and they were making a run at the World Series in 1993, and I had this seat in the couch, the same spot that I sat at for every game, and they won the National League Championship series. And I was sure it was because I was sitting in my seat, right? And so when they get to the World Series, I have to sit in the same exact seat. And you won't believe it. It works again until they lose. In game six, they're done and, uh, and they lose the World Series. And it's hard to not be superstitious. We all have little things like that. Maybe you do. But listen, God is not a, a good luck charm, He's not someone that we do something to get his favor, and, and I think there's a lot of people today that, that sort of think of him like Micah did. If I go to church, if I say a prayer, if I read a verse, if, if, I, if I recite some prayer maybe I learned when I was a kid, that somehow God's going to bless me. I'm going to get his blessing on my life. It doesn't matter how I live or, or how much I pursue God or if I'm really intent on finding truth, but if I do these little things, somehow God will do what I want him to do for me. He will give me favor. And, and I guess if that's, if that's your position on Jesus, I want you to explore more and I want you to go deeper than that because Jesus is so much more than a good luck charm. And you're gonna see in Micah's life, it didn't really work out for him very well. We'll get to that a little later. And it won't work out for you either. See, God is not an ingredient that we sort of mix into our lives sometime. He is the main course. He is it. He is the leader of our lives. This story is so ironic, getting back to the story, because the characters are so unaware when we read it, Right? they're so unaware of this, the discrepancy between their words and their actions. They're saying things like the Lord bless you, my son, and, and the Lord will be pleased with what I'm doing. And then their actions are just ridiculous, crazy against what God wants them to do and how he wants them to live. And they're so unaware of that. They don't even get it. And and that's what makes the story just so, so interesting for us to read as well. This wasn't some sort of high handed sin where Micah was shaking his fist at God and saying, you know, forget I'm going my way. He wasn't like that. He thought he was actually doing what God would want him to do. He thought he was pleasing God. His desire was good. He was incredibly sincere, but his decisions were terrible. He was making those decisions based on some truth mixed in with a lot of lies. And that's where he went wrong. Verse six, again, repeats what it said over and over in this book of Judges as you've been going through it. In, the day, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. No one paid attention to God's truth. They made up their own truth. Or maybe they sprinkled it in every once in a while, and they thought that would be all right. Well, in verse 7, this, this Levite then comes from Bethlehem. And you need to know that the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel and they were not given any land to live on. They didn't get like a state, like we have the state of Indiana, that's our land. They didn't get any land. They lived wherever God's house was, and their job was to take care of God's house. And, and so they, were, they would do all the upkeep, the maintenance. Some of them would lead worship there. Some of them would teach God's word. And a specific family within the Levite clan, the family of Aaron, those that were related and were great-grandsons of Aaron, Moses' brother, they were the priests. They would be the high priests. And so here comes a Levite, and it says that he had been living with the clan of Judah. He left that town in search for another place to stay. And it probably, the reason he's looking for work is because, remember, think, in Judges, people aren't following God, right? There's not many Israelites who are worshiping God, following him at all. And so there's, there's probably not people that are coming to the house of God to worship, to bring tribute, to bring sacrifices. And so the Levites are probably on really tough times because nobody's coming to support them. They're not, they're not taking care of what they should be doing with, to take care of God. And so then they... The guy had designed it that that's how they would be cared for, and so that's not happening. The Levites are out of work, and so he's traveling and he's looking for work. He comes across Micah, and Micah says, wait a second, I think a priest is supposed to come from the Levite family. Let's make you my priest. And so he kind of dismisses his son that he had just made priest not too long ago, and now he, he sees a chance to better himself. He's a very opportunistic person, and so he says, hey, you be my priest. This is better than what I had before. Now you be my priest. And and, and, and we don't really hear anything that happens to the son, but, but this is going to come back later, I think, to to come back and get Micah because of how he, he treats his son and he one-ups him when he gets a chance to get this Levite. And the Levite comes and the Levite should have known better. He knew that he, he wasn't from the from the family of Aaron and he knew that uh, he shouldn't be a priest but he accepts. He was in hard times. He's looking for work and uh, he breaks the very law. He's supposed to be teaching but it's a comfortable living and he does it anyway. And now Micah is extremely pleased with himself. And, and uh, he, he has his own shrine in his house. He has his own idols and carved images. And now he has his very own Levite priest. And look at verse 13, what he says Micah said, it's chapter 17, verse 13, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. He thought he was doing all right. He thought for sure, God is going to bless me because now I have a Levite priest because I've done all these things. He really believed that. All right, He, he was sincere in his belief. He thought that he was doing the right thing. Micah was pleased with himself. These chapters in Judges give us a glimpse of real life. This is how we act. This is how our culture acts. Judges is a picture of what a culture looks like without God or with mixed diluted truth where everyone does what they decide is right in their own eyes. Mike and his mother were sincere in their intention to be good people. They were good people and they were sincere in trying to be good and they thought they were, but their beliefs were blended with a sad amount of ignorance and delusion. And that's why it's so scary. Because you and I could also be tricked into making wrong decisions that are blatantly wrong, but we just can't see it that way in the moment because we're deceived into thinking, this is right for me. This is right for me. Maybe you wouldn't know the difference if if someone you know, because Micah was living there and he was seeing the the pagan uh, worship that was around him and he was mixing that in this idea of having a personal idol of having you know this shrine in your house he was mixing that in with what he he probably had heard or been taught at some point in his life about the true God but he was bringing it all together and and maybe maybe you would also could also be fooled into bringing some of of other religions or other faiths into to your life and sort of mixing it with what you know of Christianity and believing as long as I'm sincere, as long as I'm, as long as I'm um, sincere and what I'm believing, that God is pleased with that, that that's okay. And we might end up believing a lie. It's scary. Some of the most dangerous beliefs are the false ones that are mixed with some truth. In fact, it's been said, if you wish to strengthen a lie... Just mix a little bit of truth in with it. And so some of the most dangerous beliefs are those that sound right. They sound true. And if you watch TV, there are so many people out there who are pushing a certain kind of living or a certain kind of of style of living, and they bring God in every once in a while. They'll use the name of God, and they'll kind of sprinkle that in there. And we think, that sounds good. Or there's so many books that are out there today that will propose a, a way to live your life, and people will grab on and will read them. And, and you'll think, you're thinking that you're following the God of the Bible because God is mentioned in there and, and you're not following the God of the Bible at all because someone has taken a little bit of truth and has sprinkled in a lot of lies in there, something that sounds good, something that sounds like it would come from the Bible, but, but really is not at all. And there's so much that is out there that was out there for Micah to be tempted and he was and there's so much that's out there for us to be tempted and we are. The most dangerous beliefs are the false ones that are mixed with some truth. And we're tempted to somehow get involved in that or just follow the parts of God that are convenient for us. But we can't be deceived like Micah was. Don't get fooled by all the lies that are out there in culture or in other faiths that are telling you this is what will give you peace with God. This is how you will live a successful life. This is how you'll find true meaning. This is how you'll find, you know, the, the uh, happiness inside if it's not completely from Scripture. And, and here's the thing, things are only going to get worse as we, as we look at Scripture and we kind of interpret it. It says that at the very end, there'll be more and more deceivers that are going to come out with more and more lies that are going to try to fool us into believing these things. And so we must be ready. Here's the question we need to be asking. Do you know the truth well enough that you can spot the lies? Do you know the truth well enough that you can spot the lies that are out there? Let me offer for you a few application thoughts as we consider that question. Here's thought number one. The enemy schemes with half-truths leaving the scheme empty. And here's what I mean by that. Only Christ can fill your life. Only Jesus can offer you the medicine that you need, that your sick soul needs. Only him alone, not him plus something else. It's just him. But what Satan will do is he will take something that sounds true and he will just twist it a little Bit. He will make a half-truth that is really no truth at all. He will twist it. And Ephesians 6:11 tells us that he has a scheme. That he is scheming. He is planning, and he is doing whatever he can to trick you. He's doing whatever he can to, to trip you up in your life and in your walk with God. And so he'll take something that sounds sort of good, and he'll just twist it on its side just a little bit. He'll take something that is good, like a desire, and he will tweak it till it's greed. He'll take something good inside of you, like an appetite for something, something that you enjoy, but he will tweak it till it becomes an addiction. He'll take something that's a good thing, something that is appealing to you, and he'll twist it so that you are jealous if you don't have it. He'll take something that's good, like, like appreciation, something that you appreciate, and he'll tweak it so that you lust after it. That's what he does. He he takes something that's good and he just tweaks it a little bit, a half-truth. And we have to know what the truth is so that we're not fooled by what's fake. And we often believe these, these lies, but in the end it leaves us empty. The scheme that he has leaves us empty. We think, oh, that's what will make me content. That's what will make me uh, happy. But we are left empty once more. Take a look at what happens to Micah. If you look at the next chapter, chapter 18, his story kind of continues. And there are these men who come from the the clan of Dan. So there's the the Levites and and these different types of clans. One of them was the people of Dan, the tribe of Dan. And and they want to conquer a land. They come across Micah's house on this way to the land they're going to, the city they want. And they discover that he has these idols and these gods in there. And they want this good luck charms that he has, these good luck charms. And so they come and they want to take them. And we'll pick it up in verse 18. So chapter 18, verse 18, it says, When these men went into Micah's house. They took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, the cast idol. And the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Kate, come with us. Be our father and priest. Isn't it better for you to serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest than rather than just one man's household? And look at verse 20. The priest was glad. He took the ephod and the other household gods, the carved image, and he went along with the people. Now, it shouldn't have surprised Micah because what he had done this very same thing, right? He had his son installed as priest. Here comes a Levite. That's better for Micah. So he says, hey, you know, you be my priest. He was opportunistic himself. And now the Levite gets a chance. He's not just going to serve one family. Now he gets to serve an entire clan. He's opportunistic as well. He says, I'll go with you instead. So he turns his back on Micah and he goes. And the story gets even sadder, um, Verse 22 says, When they had gone a distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and they overtook the Danites. And as they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priests and you went away. What else do I have? How can you ask, What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some hot tempered men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing they were too strong for him, turned around and he went back home. Micah had put all of his faith, all of his trust in, in these half truths that he had believed, and in the end, he was left very, very empty. In fact, his question is so sad. In verse 24, uh, he says, what else do I have? He had been putting everything, all of his faith was in these fake gods, these lies that he had believed. And when it came to the end, he realized, what else do I have? Nothing. Nothing. When we believe the schemes and the half-truths that Satan plants in our minds, that he plants into culture, and we believe them and we take them, hold of them, full force. We realize that we have nothing, we are left empty. We are left empty. He says, What else do I have? Because dilute, diluted truth isn't truth at all. It always leaves you empty. But remember this: Christ is what you need, Christ alone. And so when false gods and lies fail you, Christ never does. When false gods and lies are taken away, Christ can never be taken away from you. When false gods and lies leave you empty, Christ fills you up to overflowing. So pursue Christ and nothing else. Don't pursue diluted truth. It's not truth. Don't fall prey to half-truths because they're lies. And so be aware of the enemy's schemes. Be aware that there are these half-truths out there, things that may sound good, that might have a little God sprinkled into it, but don't be fooled into thinking it's truth. Be aware. Here's a second thought for you today. God desires people to worship him in spirit and in truth. God desires people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, Turn to John 4, and and I'll show you what I mean. Turn to John 4. It's a gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. While you're turning there, just, just keep listening, though. Oprah calls that multitasking. Jesus is talking with a woman, and he wants to keep it real simple. She wants to debate, and she wants to show her people's point of view. She wants to talk about how her people worship. Jesus is explaining that he is the Messiah. And she's saying, well, our people think that, you know, the Messiah is going to be like this or he's going to do this. And, and she wants, you know, to, to talk about what other people believe and, and how, you know, everybody could be right and, and what different people think. She wants her spirituality to fit her. She wants it to be authentic to her is really what she wants. And Jesus says this to her in verse 24 of chapter 4. Let's start in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so God is seeking people who worship both in spirit and truth. She kind of wanted to to only focus on, you know, what she thought was right, and couldn't Jesus accept that? And couldn't he just kind of, you know, let her come in because she was super sincere in what she believed and what her people thought and what they believed? And he's saying, no, that that the Father is looking for people who will worship me in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter just kind of what your spirit says or, or what you think is right, but there is also the Holy Spirit which guides us into truth. Truth. And when he answers her, it's the, it's the spirit that he's talking about, the Holy Spirit. The worship We worship him in spirit and in truth, in truth alone. There are so many people today who want to worship God on their own terms, who are just like Micah. Jesus could have been saying this directly to Micah. Jesus could have been saying this directly to our culture today. Micah was someone who sincerely wanted to please God but he was just so off on his truth. He didn't know that it was both sincerity and truth that was needed. And there are so many people today who want to do exactly the same thing. They want an authentic, they want a personal experience with God. Their heart has to be in it. And absolutely that's true. Absolutely that's true. They want to be sincere like Micah was, but they are willing to do it at the expense of truth. And that doesn't work. God says both. It's okay if I believe in Jesus, people will say, but, but it's okay if you believe in something else. It's okay if you sort of mix some stuff in with your, with your spirituality from other faiths or other cultures. It's okay if we mix that in. It's okay if, if, if you don't just follow only the Bible, but other books as well that will help you gain better spiritual insight. And we're willing to uh, give up the truth to be sincere. And if someone is sincere, that somehow God has to accept that. And that's not true. Bible says, the Father is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. God does desire a sincere heart, absolutely. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions of faith. He, 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 he wanted a sincere heart like Micah had. And our culture screams for authenticity, for sincerity. And that's a way that we can relate because we want to be sincere seekers of God. But listen, we also want to be sincere seekers of truth. A sincere heart does not make up for wrong actions. And a sincere heart does not make up for wrong beliefs. A sincere heart does not make up for wrong choices. You see, sincerity plus wrong still equals wrong. There is truth, absolute truth. And we need to be those who are pushing back this idea that there is no truth or that we can decide what's right for me. And hey, if it's different for you, that's okay. We want a sincere relationship with Christ, but we want to be sincere seekers of truth. That's the kind of worshiper the Father is looking for. And if that's not the kind of worshiper that you are, then you're not really worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping something, but it's not God. We must be seekers of truth. We must know the truth. It's both. And let me close with this third thought that I want to give you today. If you want to know how to be able to see past the lies that are in culture, you must saturate your life with the Word of God. You must just saturate your life with the Word of God. There really is no other way to grow in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for five days whether you've been a Christian for five years or maybe you've been a Christian for 55 years, there's, the best thing that you can do to grow in your relationship with God is to read the Bible and let the Holy Spirit reflect on it, teach you and guide you. That's it. That's what scripture teaches. Listen, that's what surveys show. When people um, survey churches and people who are growing spiritually, the number one thing that every person's doing that is growing in a relationship with God is they're having a regular time where they personally read the Bible. There's just no way around it. If you're not on a regular basis getting into this book, you'll stay stuck wherever you're at right now. You'll never grow anymore. You need to know how to get into this book and study it. You need to take this this meat that is here for you and you need to apply it to your life if you want to go any further in your relationship with God. That's why our discipleship ministry is here at Grace whether it's phase two for kids, whether it's student access leader uh, ministry for teenagers, whether it's our fight club or whether it's uh, the ladies 40 day challenge. We have a variety of things that you can do to grow, a variety of assignments that come out of those different discipleship ministries. But what is the one thing that we do every day, no matter what the other assignments are, we spend time in this book because this is the only thing that's gonna really transform our hearts and lives is the word of God. It is 100% without error. Every word of it breathed out by the mouth of God, recorded for us so that we can have the truth that we need to navigate the world that we live in today. That is what this is. It is the life that we need to survive. Let it change you. Mark it up. Make Take notes on Sundays. Take that Bible home. Read it during the week. Bring it back with you on Sunday so that you can mark it some more and let it over, come over your life. Some of you have been followers for Christ for some time, but you still don't know how to defend the truth at work when you're challenged. You still don't know how to defend the truth at home when you're challenged. Maybe it's time for you to hammer down into this book and go deeper than you've ever gone before and find that the truth that is in here, it's not boring, it's not dusty, it is life-giving, it is life-changing, and you will become the person that God intends you to be because you'll be ready for the battle. That verse that we put up on the board there a second ago, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, tells us that the word of God equips us for every good work that God wants us to do. This is how we're equipped. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us. This is how we will go deeper. This is how we won't get fooled by all the lies that are out there. Let me close with this main thought that I shared today. Do you know the truth well enough so that you can spot the lies? Do you know the truth well enough so that you can spot the lies? The more that you saturate your life with the word of God, the more that you seek to understand the deeper things of scripture, the more that you seek to worship God in spirit and truth, the more you'll be able to recognize the schemes of the enemy when they come into your way. The more you'll be able to recognize the half-truths of the enemy so that you won't be left empty. I've only bought one diamond ring in my life. I bought it for my wife, Tara, when we got engaged. I had to buy a second diamond because she was leading worship up here at one time and somehow it fell out. And so sometimes when I'm preaching, you'll see me looking, I'm looking for this diamond. I'm walking around, I'm like, where is this thing? We had to buy a second one, we had to replace it in a ring. And so I still only bought two diamonds in my life, so I'm definitely not an expert. And I have to trust the guys and the ladies that really know what they're talking about. And as I I bought the second diamond, I kind of learned, you know, there are different tests that you can do to find out if something's real or fake. You know, you check the weight, you look through it, you heat it up, look at the bottom of it, all those stuff, and much, much more. I'm still not an expert. Even when I do those tests, it's still hard for me to tell which is different, which is real, and which is fake, because I'm not the expert. But here's what I learned. A good jeweler knows the difference... Because they have seen the real thing so many times. They have touched the real thing so many times. They have handled the real thing so many times. They have looked at the real thing so many times. They can spot the fake the moment they see it. And that is how our lives must be. The best way to be able to recognize the lies that are out there is to study the truth. And to know it so well that the fakes simply become obvious to us. Do you know the truth well enough to spot the lies? Lord Jesus, we need your help. Because as we get into the last days, we know that there will be many deceivers who will continue to try to deceive and will promote something that they say is truth from you, and yet it is not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that can see real truth I pray, God, that you would help us. This is a year, Lord, where we go deeper than we've ever gone in our relationship with you. We go further, we, we dig into your word. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher as we open your word. Convict us, challenge us, shape us the way that you want us to so that we can be the most effective tool for you to build your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' strong name we pray, Amen. Amen.